couple of weeks, and then as we get into today, that this second half of the book of Romans, uh, actually, I was looking at it, I think we're in week 26 or 27, something like that. Wow. We've been traveling through this for a little while, but we're getting closer toward the end. But this second half of the book of Romans is very practical. Uh, Paul has been teaching a lot of theology, the first eight chapters, and then nine through 11, kind of some stuff about Israel. Uh, But this is Paul's opportunity to really give some practical advice, some practical wisdom to the church in Rome that he's writing to. And so we'll get some of that flavor today. So Romans chapter 13, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 5. This talks about the subject of the government and what the relationship of the Christian should be to the government. So let's read together. Let's stand to our feet. Read Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Here we go. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, well, let's just kind of dive into these verses together. You may have already kind of sat up in your seat a little bit and pricked at some of what you just heard. And so uh, I ask that you would suspend judgment um, as we travel through these verses until we get toward, uh, closer toward the end, and we'll see what difference all this makes to your life and mine. Romans chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, the Greek word that's translated subject is the Greek term hupat at esto, and it was a military term, and it's referring to when a military uh, group of like a brigade or a group, a platoon, are placed under uh, the authority of a commanding officer. And so Paul is saying that Christians are to be subject in that way, he's using this military term to describe our relationship to the government. He's saying that we should be subject to the government um, in that same way that military officials are, military uh, soldiers are to their officers, that we are to be obedient, we are to be good citizens, we are to be supportive citizens of the government under which we live. Again, a plain reading of the text is, let's look at it again, it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. You say, well, that seems kind of surprising. Um, I thought that Paul would have said that we're supposed to be subject to God and to God alone, and that the rest is, you know, just the rest. We just happen to live in a world with, where there is government. Um, well, let's keep reading. Uh, let's see if God, what God has to say about civil authorities. It says, middle verse 1, For there is no authority except from God. Notice that Paul does not say that there is no authority except for God. He says there is no authority except those which exist from God. He's saying that the, the authorities that we experience in our daily lives Um, are ones that God has established. He says this at the end of verse 1. He says, and those that exist have been instituted from God. Um, And so the view of the Bible is that civil government has been established by God, and that statement, there is no authority, is an all-inclusive statement. It says that at every level, from the swearing-in of the President of the United States to the county clerk, that at every level of government, that those people exist for the pleasure and for the purposes of Almighty God. You say, Gordon, i got a problem here. Are you saying that God instituted the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Well, friends, according to what the Bible just said, that's exactly what happened. Now, I don't know why God would have instituted the Taliban. I don't know why God would have propped up Al-Qaeda 
or other governments like Nazi Germany, other governments that have done great evil. I don't know what God is planning on accomplishing through those things, but what the Bible says is that those authorities exist, or those authorities that exist, have been instituted by God, straight from the words of Scripture itself. Um, this call to obey civil authorities is not just here, and in case you're wondering, maybe this is just an, a one-off event here in Scripture. This is, actually occurs in other places in Scripture. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, so prayers be made by all people, all Christians, verse 2, for, look at who we're praying for, for kings and for all people who are in high positions. Paul gives the charge for us to pray for our civil government. Titus chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul writes, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. In case we wonder, this is just an opinion that the apostle Paul held. Also, Peter held this. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 13, he says, be subject, same word, hupat asesto, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme verse 14 or to governors as sent by him skip forward to verse 7 it says honor everyone love your your brother brotherhood fear god and honor the emperor so this is a consistent teaching throughout all of scripture jesus himself said that render to caesar what is caesar's and give to god what is god's jesus didn't have a problem with submitting to the authorities of his day he encouraged people to do this he thought this was the right thing to do um, it's interesting, though, that Peter, who just wrote those words, uh, saying to honor the emperor, would later be crucified by that same emperor, upside down. And Paul, who writes these words about being subjected to the, the governing authorities, is the same Paul who had an iron place on the back of his neck right before he lost his life. But can, and so you say, well, maybe they would have thought differently. Maybe they would have made a different statement in hindsight, right? Well, look at the, the rest of church history has to say. For example, Justin Martyr, with the benefit of hindsight, Justin Martyr writes, Everywhere, we as Christians, more readily than all men, endeavor to pay to those appointed by you the taxes, both ordinary and extraordinary, as we have been taught by Jesus. Another great church father, Tertullian, wrote the great length on this subject, and he writes, Without ceasing, for all our emperors, we offer prayer. We pray for prolonged life for them, for security to the empire, and for protection for the imperial house. You say, Gordon, how do we reconcile this? I mean, how do we, how do we say, how does the Bible say submit to authorities when these authorities are the people who took the lives of the Apostle Paul? These same authorities, these evil authorities took the life of the great Apostle Peter. Well, let me read to you how William Barclay answers that question. William Barclay is a great, uh, well-respected scholar of the New Testament. And William Barclay writes these words. He says, Paul's main view of the state was that the Roman Empire was the divinely ordained instrument to save the world from chaos. So in other words, that the Roman Empire existed uh, in a way that it would stabilize that part of the world. Um, without the Roman Empire, without the Pax Romana, which he's about ready to mention here, um, you would have had little dictators popping up all over the, the Roman Empire, all over these regions that would have destabilized that part of the world. Barclay says that take away that empire and the world would disintegrate into flying fragments. Then he goes on to say, or conclude, it was in fact the Pax Romana, the peace, Roman peace, which gave the Christian missionaries the chance to do their work. And here's his conclusion. Ideally, people should be bound together by Christian love, but they're not. The man's a realist. He sees how life really is. We should be bound together by Christian love. People should live in harmony with one another, he says, but they're not. And the cement, then, therefore, which keeps them together is 
the state, end of quote. So in other words, whether a governor, a senator, a local magistrate, or the emperor himself, whether they knew it or not, each of them was playing their part in God's plan and in God's great task of preserving the world from chaos so that missionaries could do their work. And today, America is that nation. 200 years ago, Britain was that nation, that global force in the world that kept the world from spinning off and becoming uh, descending into chaos. Um, that's the way William Barclay saw it. That's the way perhaps the Apostle Paul saw this as well. Friends, a world without civil government, even an evil government, is better than no government at all. That's what the Bible is saying. Let me repeat that for us again. A world without a government, a world, with, a world with, without civil government, even an evil government, is better than no government at all. Now, we as believers can work to help that government become more righteous. We can help to help that government become more God-honoring. We certainly can do that, but the Bible is very clear that we are to be obedient and cooperative with our civil government. Let's go back to our text, verse 2. Nobody's left yet. That's good. Remember, I'm just telling what the Bible says, okay? Um, we teach the full counsel of God's Word here, even the stuff that maybe doesn't quite register uh, or we like. Uh, given that we understand that governments are instituted by God, he says, whoever resists, verse 2, the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. It is interesting, as I was reading back through some books and looking at some stuff through history and some of the commentaries had to say that in the 18th century in America, Christians who opposed the British imperial government saw that verse as the stopgap verse that kept them from wanting to rebel against their government. It was a sobering thought that if I rebel against my government, I might incur the judgment of God. And if God's on the side of government, civil government, then I want to be on God's side. I don't want to be against God. And so that verse held the early colonists back uh, in large part from uh, their uh, rebellion against the British imperialism. More on that in just a little bit. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Now that is a generalization. That statement's a point of wisdom. Uh, Paul's making an observation here that if, if you're a robber, you can expect that the government is going to find you out and that they're going to punish you. And that's why the government exists. It exists to bring out of, keep us from descending into chaos, to keep order. Um, the point Paul's making here, again, is that if you're a robber, if you're a server of the peace, if you're, uh, you can expect the government to come down hard on you. If you're law-abiding as a general rule, you can expect not to be fearful of their authority. He says in the middle of verse 4, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Do you want to live in a way where you're not fearful of the government? He says, well, then here's what you do. Do what's good. He said, and you'll receive his approval. And then back to this point of civil authorities as ordained by God, he says in verse 4, for he, the civil authority, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, I want to take a time out here for just a moment because this verse right here is a verse that has been debated much in theological circles uh, with regard to the topic of capital punishment. Capital punishment is where the state uh, comes in and takes the life of somebody for uh, disobeying a law. In the case of the United States, if they, somebody commits first-degree murder, capital punishment is one of the um, op options. Um, Again, the verse reads, uh, if you do wrong, be afraid, for the governing authorities does not bear the sword in vain. Um, 
you say, Gordon, I thought the Bible said you shall not murder. It does say that. And uh, how can the Bible then on the one hand say you shall not murder, but then on the other hand um, say that, that the sword is there? You know, the sword back in ancient times was a symbol of death. And so the Bible's here declaring that the state has the right or has the capacity to take life. Um, that's what this Bible, what this verse, some commentators would say that what this verse is declaring. And so, but then again, we have this kind of inconsistency here where the Bible says you shall not murder, but yet we're taking human life. How do we, how do we, uh, how is that consistent? Well, Larry King, you all remember Larry King, he didn't think that was very consistent. In fact, he used to say that he would take up the church's, uh, um, the church's position on abortion if the church would take up a position against capital punishment. He saw the two as inconsistent, one not compatible with the other. And so we're left with a seeming contradiction. The the Bible clearly in the Old Testament teaches capital punishment. They did it many, many times. Read through the Old Testament. It it happened. It's all over the place. And so how do we, we were just in our our study this morning. We were looking at 3,000 people were executed uh, at the base of Mount Sinai for some things that they did. How do we explain that? Well, the explanation is that Larry King is uh, not got all the facts together. There is a remarkable consistency in the biblical practice of capital punishment and the church's position on abortion in that capital punishment is saying that if you rise up and you take a human life through malice and a forethought, then you have violated a most sacred principle, and that principle that you violated is the value of human life. And so the Bible has declared, at least some theologians would say here in these verses, that, look, if somebody takes a human life, which is against the principle of the value of human life, then in order to uphold the value of human life, that life is taken. They forfeited their own life. And so it's God's way of communicating to the world that he will not tolerate the murder of human beings. That's the biblical rationale. You may not agree with it. You may not see how theologians arrive at that conclusion, um, and that's okay, but that's the rationale that some hold. Um, I have close friends in ministry who do not agree with that explanation. They see only inconsistencies there. But the problem that they have is they, then they're back to square one of having to reconcile you shall not murder with a couple pages later in the Bible where God says, now in these cases, in these situations, here's, how, here's what you do. You take these people's lives. And so they're left trying to uh, deal with that. So I'm going to have to leave that one up to each of you uh, to sort through you know, where you stand on that and what you think the Bible is, is stating. All right, well, that's our text for today, and so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question. If you keep reading into verse 6, it gets into taxes. I just thought we had gone deep enough today. So um, you're saying, well, what difference does all this make to my life? Well, you know, you say, Gordon, I'm having a little bit of trouble with this because, as you said, the colonists rebelled against their government, and I know that godly leaders like Dietrich Bonhoeffer plotted to overthrow the evil Nazi Germany government. Is the Bible saying then that they were wrong to oppose their government? Is that what the scriptures are declaring here? Am I just supposed to obey the government no matter what? What difference does any of this make to me? Well, that's a really great point and a good question. Let's see if we can answer that. What we discover as we travel through the Bible is that there are many examples of godly men and women opposing the governments of their day. For example... The Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 5 refused to obey the governing authorities of his day who said, you better not go out and tell anybody about Jesus. You're not allowed to do it. It is unlawful. We will throw you in jail. Apostle Peter said, well, I'm sorry, but 
that's just what I'm going to have to do. And so the Apostle Peter went out and he preached about Jesus. And sure enough, they threw him in jail. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. This is the very guy who said, and I'll quote to us again, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. How about Elijah, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets? Elijah rebuked the king and queen publicly. He opposed their uh, evil, unlawful leadership, that of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel in the contest with the prophets of Baal. And many, many, many of the other Old Testament prophets followed suit, did the same thing. Jesus himself healed on the Sabbath, defying the law of his government. So apparently these words in Romans chapter 13 need to be taken as a generalization, as uh, not as a, basically that these are the basic rules to follow in most situations, but that this is not a prescription for us to follow in all scenarios because we have examples throughout Scripture of godly men and women who oppose the government of their day, which is different than what Romans 13 seems to be saying. The great commentator Charles Hodge said it this way, and I quote, The obedience which the Scriptures commends us to show our rulers is not unlimited. There are cases in which disobedience becomes a duty. End of quote. Now, that's a very dangerous statement. And it's a dangerous statement not because it's not true. I believe it. The statement is true. But the pro- where it's dangerous is that this guy Hodge and others like him don't say this is where the line stops. This is where the government has crossed the line that now they need to be opposed. There's, there's no clarity about where that line is to be drawn. And down through the centuries, godly men and women have disagreed about exactly where that line should be drawn. For example... <clears throat> I'm going to give you three examples here uh, throughout in human history. Martin Luther's first of those. He led the Great Reformation. He was alive in 1524 when one of the great uprisings occurred in Germany. It was called the Peasants' War. And it was a rebellion of, tens of well, hundreds of thousands of peasants against the ruling aristocracy of their day. They didn't like the princes and the way they were being treated, and so they rose up against that. And in part, what spurred them to want to rise up against uh, the aristocracy of their day... <clears throat> is that Martin Luther had been telling them that you're saved by faith, by putting your faith and trust in the work that Jesus did on the cross, that you don't have to go through some mediator, you don't have to go through the Pope, you don't have to go through a priest, you can just talk directly to God himself. He taught the priesthood of all believers. He taught the peasants that they had innate worth, and even, <clears throat> even though they were peasants. And so all of this stirred up a sense of independence within them, and they thought, why are we living in subjection to these princes and being treated like scum and being treated like second-class citizens when the Bible says that we have innate worth? Why, why are we living like this? And so they wondered, you know, maybe we ought to rise up against this. And so Luther's position was, in, in deference to them, was that theology and politics should be absolutely separate. And so he encouraged them to lay down their arms, to give up peacefully, and to live in submission to their ruling class. And when they wouldn't do it, Luther himself wrote a pamphlet to all the princes of Germany, and he told them, and I quote, to strike down and to stab the rebels like mad dogs, end of quote. So Luther had a very different perspective than the peasants did about the role of the government and about our submission to it. Before the rebellion was over, more than 100,000 peasants were slaughtered. Today, Luther would be in the camp that says, look, our job as the church, as believers, is to preach the gospel, which will then result in the changed hearts of people, uh, and then eventually that will trickle its way up or down, however you want to look at it, 
into government. <laughs> anyway, I'll let you all read into that and have a conversation over lunch about afterwards. Um, our job is to preach the gospel, to change people that will then change society, and sooner or later it will result in a change of the leadership in government. That's what Luther thought. Now, there's another guy who was a contemporary of his, a guy by the name of John Calvin, and John Calvin shared Martin Luther's theology. They both were teaching salvation by grace through faith alone. Um, they were in the very same theological camp, but Calvin taught that uh, had a very different outlook on politics. His outlook was that the church and the government should work together as a team to produce a society that was godly and righteous. Furthermore, Calvin believed that when the government or any member of the government was operating outside of the truth of God, that that person or that government should be opposed and that we should make efforts to try and make changes, to try and remove those people from office. But his position was that we ought to follow the processes of politics in order to see that happen. Uh, not that we should be like the presence and rush the castles and tear the princes out and, and, and do away with them, but rather that we ought to follow the process of government, that we ought to go to the voting box, that we ought to uh, lobby our senators, that we ought to send godly men and women up to, up to the halls of where decisions are made, and that therefore we ought to use the authority within the system to change the system. That was the opinion of John Calvin. Now there's a third man who also lived during that very same time, Again, a contemporary of both Luther and Calvin who shared their perspective on things, and his name was, Pat, or was Aldrich Zwingli of Switzerland. i got a picture of him for you here. Uh, Zwingli was a Swiss leader of the Reformation, and he taught, again, that salvation was by, by grace through faith alone. And so he shared Luther's opinion. He shared uh, Calvin's opinion on, on, theologically. Uh, he was a pastor all of his life. But Zwingli believed that the church had the responsibility to work with government and to bring it more in line with Scripture. But he also taught that the church had the responsibility to make government get more in line with Scripture. And so if force was necessary, then that force is what we would do. And so Zwingli was in favor of reforming government. He was in favor of military service of Christians. And at that time, the Catholic Church controlled much of Switzerland, and they opposed Zwingli, and they wouldn't let him preach, and they wouldn't let him teach. And so he said, hey, look, guys, take up your arms. And so Zwingli led his own church members and other Protestants across Switzerland in a revolt against the Catholic government of his day. In two different wars, Zwingli died on the battlefield at the age of 47 in 1531, with his sword in his hand. And you can see the, the statue of him there. He's holding his Bible in one hand, and his hands are both on the hilt of his sword in the other. Um, Martin Luther, when he was told about Zwingli's death, simply said, again, these guys all knew one another. When he was told about Zwingli's death, simply said, all those who take the sword will die by the sword. Nonetheless, today, there are those Christians who would say fighting social injustice is part of the church's responsibility, and we dare not stand back and let government go its own way. And when it goes the way of unrighteousness, it is our duty as Christians to oppose that government uh, by force if necessary. If Zwingli was alive today, I have no doubt that he would be sitting outside of abortion clinics, that he'd be violating trespassing laws, that he would see to it that that evil sin of America was put to rest. And so we have three men who lived during the same time period who shared the same theological convictions of salvation by faith alone, all Protestant reformers, and again, they all knew one another, and yet they had three vastly different views on where that line ought to be drawn between obeying God and obeying man. You say, well, 
which of them was right? You know, which one was correct? I mean, which of these three people should we follow? Which one of these three strategies, if you would, for change is the right strategy? Well, I think they're all right. You say, you're just such a politician. <laughs> uh, no, really, seriously, I really do think that each of them was right. I think that all three of them were doing what they thought was correct. Because when you examine the New Testament, what you find is that the principles are not clear as to where the line should be drawn in regard to when we obey the government and when we should oppose the government. We read Romans chapter uh, 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2, both Peter and Paul both say we ought to obey the government. And then over in Acts chapter 5, you have Peter defying the government of his day. We read Paul uh, in the New Testament talking about how slaves should submit to their masters. And then we read in that same New Testament about Jesus who was breaking or defying the laws of his day by healing on the Sabbath. And so what I'm trying to say is that the Word of God does not give us a neat and clean set of guidelines to decide when we submit to civil government, even when that civil government is violating the Word of God, and when as a Christian we feel like that government has gone too far. Again, the Bible doesn't say, okay, at this point the government's gone too far. The Bible just doesn't say that. Those lines aren't that clear. And so should Christians in China rise up in rebellion against their government, which has outlawed the preaching of the gospel? Again, that's a decision that the people of that country have to make. How should we as Christians in the United States deal with the issue of abortion? Luther would have said, fight it by preaching the gospel. Change the hearts of people. Save people and you will save the society. That's what Luther would have said. Calvin would have said, come along, would have said, that we need to use the political machinery available to us, that we need to elect godly officials, men and women, who will make it their agenda to affect change, and that we need to target ungodly officials and campaign against them and campaign on particular points of view, write letters, make phone calls. And then Zwingli would have come along and said, we need to refuse to go along with the ungodly and unrighteous laws, and we need to take up our sword, take up our helmet, and defy trespassing laws, close abortion clinics, get arrested and convicted if that's what's necessary. And so it's my opinion that a biblical case can be made for any one of these perspectives. And so I see the decision being left up to each individual Christian that it is a matter of conscience, that it is a matter of individual conscience. That's what we see in the case of Luther, in the case of Calvin, in the case of Zwingli. To ask what liberty in our quiet time God, what liberty are you giving me in order to, and, and how I'm to oppose these unrighteous and evil laws? Am I going to go at it like Luther? Am I going to go at it like Calvin? Or am I going to go at it like Zwingli? Again, the Bible doesn't seem to indicate that any one of them was right or wrong. It seems a matter of conscience. And so what you and I need to do is to get on our face before God and ask him, God, what liberty are you granting me? Now, here's the flip side of that, that when other people, godly men and women, don't agree with our plan of attack, we don't stand in judgment over those people because the Bible hasn't told them what it is they're supposed to do. So we just act in accordance with our conscience. Um, if I'm siding with Luther and somebody comes up and they're siding with Zwingli or vice versa, it doesn't mean that they are less godly. It just means that when God doesn't speak with absolute clarity in the word of God, then godly people have the right and the responsibility to follow their own conscience. For whatsoever is not of faith 
the Bible says, is sin. And whatever I can do in my conscience to the limit of faith, believing that God approves it, that is what I'm free to do and no more. In fact, God comments on that right here in Romans chapter 14. This is where I'll end today, Romans chapter 14 and verse 5. Romans chapter 14, he's talking about there about what do we do when the Bible doesn't speak clearly on an issue, when we don't know exactly which way to go. How, how do we deal with that? He says, verse 5, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should, fully, should be fully convinced in his own mind. Some translations read, should be fully convinced in his own conscience. Where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible is silent, we are silent. And where the Bible is silent, we follow our conscience. Again, faith, or for whatsoever is not of faith, is sin. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we thank you for speaking to us today, for reminding us that government is a blessing, uh, that it is, it is instituted by you, that it is your hand that has raised up government for the sake of creating peace and for the sake of creating a situation in the world where your good news can go forward into the uttermost parts of the world. God, we ask that you would uh, help us to know how to respond when our government is acting in ways that are contrary to your teaching. Or may we um, hear your voice clearly and respond obediently. Ultimately, Lord, you are our authority. And so we, we want to follow you. But God, we have to hear your voice, hear your Holy Spirit speaking to us in these gray areas. Lord, we come now to this table to remind it of your shed blood, of your broken body. We are thankful for the forgiveness of sin that we have because of your death on the cross, Jesus. For eternal life with you, that is ours, by putting our faith and our trust in you. Lord, if there be any here today who are not sure where they will spend eternity, may they in these quiet moments confess their sin, invite you into their life, make you their Lord and their Savior. Encourage us all, speak to us, we pray, during these quiet times. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.